Do you ever wake up sore with no explanation for the pain? How about scratches on your arms and legs with no explanation? Well, if so, friend, this warning might be for you. See, after my ex and I broke up, I started going for night walks, long, aimless strolls around town after dark. The cool night air cleared my head. Putting one foot in front of the other gave me a sense of purpose. And if nothing else, it filled up the hours that we used to spend together with something other than resentful remembering. Lately, though, I'm afraid to go out after dark. It started three nights ago. I usually turned around at the ugly 1970s high school at the edge of town. That night the breeze was cool and fresh and I hadn't seen a soul. It was like I had the world to myself. I decided to make a loop by cutting across the field that separated the 24-hour gas station from the suburb next door. There was a full moon, so I hoped I might even be able to see some wildlife. I was enjoying the fact that no one else seemed to be out, but it should have been a warning, especially when I saw the car stopped in the middle of the empty road, its driver's side door wide open. At the time, I just lifted an eyebrow and moved on. I mean, it was strange, sure, but you see a lot of strange things walking around at night. And the gas station, too, was empty. And the lights were on, the country station played from the speakers, but there was no one at the register. And perhaps the night shift guy was just in the back, unloading boxes or something. But I was starting to get a little nervous. Where did everybody go? That was when I saw the man in the field. He'd been so stiff, so still in the silvery light, that at first I'd taken him for a pole or something. He was just standing there, like a scarecrow in pajamas, staring up at the moon. As I watched, he began to spin. He spun until he lifted right off the ground and twirled through the air like some kind of nightmarish toy top. He spun through the air with the moths and nightbirds and the... Oh god, there were dozens of them. Some of them people I knew, spinning wildly through the night sky. Fascinated, I crept closer through the knee-high misty grass. More people were walking out of the black wall of forest at the edge of the field. They wore everything from business suits to nothing at all, like they just stopped doing whatever they were doing, even showering or work, to come to this field and spin. I realized the helpless figures above me were moaning softly as they twirled, although whether in pain or pleasure, I couldn't tell. On the street behind me, another car rolled silently to a stop. Its driver climbed out the door with the wheels still rolling and walked toward the field like a sleepwalker. But when she saw me, she froze. The moonlight in her eyes shone an eerie silver-green color as she raised her arm and pointed at me like an accusing judge. The figures above me had stopped spinning. They hovered, arms straight out, staring at me. One of them lifted through the air, gentle as a floating feather, then plunged like a swooping hawk. I recognized the face of the bald cashier from the sandwich shop a second before his clawed hand dug into my shoulder. The force of it knocked me over onto the dewy ground, but I could see that the others were also preparing to swoop. The woman stood like a statue with her arm outstretched between me and my path of retreat, so I charged forward across the misty field toward the suburb on the other side. With a slam, I felt the head of a child hit my back. An elderly woman's teeth grazed my ribs. 
floating bodies flickered around me, pursuing me like birds defending their nest. I twist my ankle in the soggy dirt. Cut by thorns and batted by the flying figures, I kept moving until a teenage girl floating above me tangled her fingers in my hair. With horror, I felt myself lifting off the ground, up toward the cold, cruel face of the full moon. I shook my head wildly, heard and felt the sickening sounds of hair ripped out of my head. But I fell, and suddenly I was through to the other side. One by one, my friends and neighbors drifted back to their positions a hundred feet in the air, spinning in the moonlight. I went home by the darkest route I could find. I didn't encounter a single person on the street, but occasionally I'd see a few hovering above me. And today in the sandwich shop, the bald cashier seemed to have no recollection of what happened during the night. He just rubbed his neck like it hurt him when he rang up my order. I uh, think I'm going to stick to day walks from now on. There's more evidence that makes me want to ride a bike rather than walk, even at night. Be careful after dark. That's what we learned from author John Beardify from the tale which was this episode's cold open. The Moonlight and Me, performed by Matthew Bradford. We welcome you into the next decade of our journey through old-time television. We have entered the 1980s. Ah, the 80s. A time when music turned to synthesizers for its new wave sound. When MTV ushered in the era of music videos. And when you weren't watching MTV, television offered the horror of Friday the 13th, the series, Tales from the Dark Side, and eventually, Tales from the Crypt. Gothic tales and goth music right up our alley. We trust you'll find our time in the 80s to be authentic horror rather than synthetic And speaking of being authentic, I'm genuinely thrilled to introduce you to a new voice on the show. Normally I introduce new voice actors when they first arrive, but the busy schedule recently means you've heard her many times already. I'm speaking of Ash Millman. 
a self-described horror nut. Ash may be familiar to many of you in the UK and beyond. She's currently working as a presenter on the massive YouTube channel PlayStation Access. And Ash previously founded and managed the horror channel for the YouTube franchise What Culture. So we welcome Ash to the podcast as she joins our already formidable cast of UK actors. A warm yet overdue welcome, Ash. Thanks for joining the No Sleep team. And now, check under the bed and pull the sheets up tight. The darkness is here, but you'll be sleepless tonight. In our first tale, we meet a young boy anxiously awaiting his first trick-or-treating adventure on Halloween. Well, that is, if his parents allow him to go out. But in this tale, shared with us by author K.G. Lewis, the boy manages to sneak his way into some trick-or-treating and learns so much more about why his parents are against Halloween altogether. Performing this tale are Jeff Clement, Ellie Hirschman, Jesse Cornett, and Nicole Doolin. So make sure you understand your Halloween costume. You might discover that they're more than the masks we wear. Joel asked me if I could go trick-or-treating with him and his sister tonight. I was sitting at the table eating dinner with my mom and dad when I made the comment. My mother gave me a sympathetic look before turning her eyes to my father. I'd seen the look she gave him plenty of times. She was silently pleading with him to be nice and keep his temper under control. My father set his fork down on his plate before he addressed me. We've already been over this, Lucas. You know we don't celebrate Halloween in this household. Why not? Because it's not safe. That was the same answer he gave me every year. And normally I'd just let it go and accept that I was just going to miss out on another Halloween. Well, not this year. This year, I wasn't going to give up without a fight. That's bullshit! I slammed my utensils down on the plate. All my friends go trick-or-treating every year, and nothing bad has ever happened to them. Watch your language. My mother gave me a stern look. This isn't open for debate. If you don't like it, maybe you should spend the rest of the evening in your room. He pointed his finger down the hall. Maybe I will. I stood up, knocking my chair over in the process. It sounds like a lot more fun than spending the night with the two of you. Before I stormed out of the room, I saw the wounded look on my mother's face. A typical Halloween night at my house usually involved my mother and me playing games and watching TV while my father busied himself around the house. I knew she did that to try to make me feel better about not going out with the other kids, and I truly appreciated it. However, if my plan to get out of the house was going to work, I needed my parents to think I was upset with them and for them to be upset with me. So far, my plan was working. After walking into my room, I slammed the door shut behind me and locked it. As soon as I was sure neither of my parents had followed me, I stepped over to the window and pulled it open. 
I was happy to see my friend Joel standing in the bushes outside my house waiting for me. He started to speak, but I held up my hand, silencing him. Hold on a sec. I grabbed the remote off my dresser and used it to turn on the TV. Once it was on, I opened the YouTube app and went to one of the gaming channels I was subscribed to and started playing a random video. I was hoping the noise would mask the sound of mine and Joel's voices, as well as make my parents think I was just lying on my bed watching TV. What took you so long? Joel pressed his face to the security bars that hung over the window. I've been waiting out here for like 20 minutes. I was about to go home. Sorry, we started dinner late. Are you sure you still want to do this? He looked up at me expectantly. I'm positive, but we have to hurry. I looked over at the alarm clock on my nightstand. It was just after 7 p.m. I need to be back inside by 8.30, or my parents will start getting suspicious. That should give us plenty of time to get through the neighborhood. Did you bring the bolt cutters? I wasn't going to be able to leave the house if he'd forgotten them. He swung the backpack he was carrying off his shoulder and set it on the ground, unzipping it. A moment later, he pulled out a pair of bolt cutters as long as my forearm, then handed me the tool through the bars. Sorry, I couldn't fit the bigger ones into my bag without my father noticing. That's okay. I took the tool and used it to grab hold of the padlock my father had placed on the latch of the bars. Oh, these should work. The bars weren't locked like that all of the time. My father only padlocked them on Halloween. He said it was to keep us safe, but I knew he only did it to keep me from leaving the house. My face began to turn red as I applied as much pressure as I could to the handles of the bolt cutters, but it wasn't enough to break through the arm of the padlock. Maybe we can get it if we both tried. Okay. I repositioned the bolt cutter so Joel and I could squeeze the handles together without getting in each other's way. That worked. There was a snipping sound as the bolt cutters cut through the padlock. Yes! I cried out, accidentally knocking the bolt cutters against the bars in the process, which made the padlock rattle in the latch. A few moments later, there was a knock on my door. Everything okay in there? I held my index finger up to my mouth, telling Joel to be quiet. Everything's fine. I snapped, keeping up the facade that I was angry and wanted to be left alone. What was that noise? I... I dropped the remote. When she didn't demand I unlock the door, I sighed in relief. I'm making a blackberry cobbler for dessert. Do you want me to bring you some? I just want you to leave me alone. I didn't like being mean to her, but I had to do it if I was ever going to get out of the house. She didn't reply, but I knew she was still standing out in the hall. I could see her shadow under the crack of the door. After what felt like an eternity, she turned and walked away. I rushed back over to the window and carefully removed the padlock from the latch. Help me get this open. You pull while I push. The two of us worked together, swinging the bars open as quietly as we could. At one point, I had Joel stop so I could turn up the volume on the TV as a precaution. Once we got the bars open far enough for me to squeeze out, I returned the volume to normal, 
then climbed out the window. Do you have everything we need? Joel reached into his backpack and produced two latex masks, one in each hand. Would you rather be the Wolfman or the Killer Clown? They're your masks. You pick the one you want and I'll wear the other. I didn't care which mask he gave me. I was just excited that I was getting to go trick-or-treating for the first time in my life. You can be the werewolf. Joel thrust the mask into my hands. I wore it last year. Cool. I turned the mask around in my hands so I could admire the snarling visage. You're gonna need one of these? Joel reached back into his backpack and pulled out a pillowcase. For the candy. I took the pillowcase and draped it over my shoulder. Joel dropped his backpack beneath my window after putting the clown mask on. Is it okay if I leave that here until we get back? His voice was muffled by the mask as he pointed at the bag. Yeah. My parents rarely came out into the backyard, so the chances of them finding it were pretty slim. Put on your mask and let's go. I turned the mask around and held it by the two flaps at the back of the neck as I slid it over the top of my head. As soon as it was in place, a strange sensation came over me. It started with a tingling feeling at the tips of my fingers and toes and quickly spread across my body. When I looked over at Joel, he had a worried look on his face. Before I could ask him what was wrong, the tingling sensation had reached my head, making me feel dizzy and lightheaded. Before long, the world was spinning so fast I couldn't tell which way was up or down. I tried to fight it for as long as I could, but it was too intense. I felt my eyes roll into the back of my head, and then I blacked out. The last thing I remember before passing out was Joel screaming and the feeling of something wet spraying across my face. Get the mask off. My mother's voice was distant and indistinct, like I was listening to her while submerged in a tub of water. I felt someone reach behind my head and grab hold of the hair on the nape of my neck and pull. It felt like they were ripping my scalp off. The intense pain I felt brought me fully awake. I cried out and tried to crawl away from whoever it was. When I was finally able to see again, I saw my dad standing over me holding the werewolf mask. Dripping from it was a thick, red liquid. <sighs> what happened? I felt like I had just awoken from a fever dream. My father threw the mask at me. It landed on my chest, sending droplets of the red liquid onto my face. Don't be too hard on him. My mother walked up to my father and placed her hand on his arm. He had no idea this would happen. I went to wipe the liquid off my face with my hand, but only wound up smearing it around. I pulled my hand away and looked at it. It was covered with the same red liquid. It could only be one thing. Blood. And it wasn't mine. Where's Joel? 
I followed my mother and father's gaze to the motionless form of my friend lying on the grass several feet away from me. His abdomen had been ripped open, exposing his intestines, some part of which lay on the ground next to him. Bile began rising up in the back of my throat, a sure sign I was about to throw up. Don't you dare look away. My father stormed over to me and hauled me to my feet. This is your fault. He wrapped his arm around my neck and held my head in place. You did this. He held me like that until I started gagging, taking a few steps back so he didn't get splashed while I expelled the contents of my stomach onto the ground. When I looked down at the puddle of puke and saw bits of raw flesh mixed in with what I had for dinner, I vomited again. I I don't understand. My mother came over and put her arm around my shoulders. This is what we were trying to protect you from. She gestured at Joel's body. You're not like the other kids, honey. She wiped away the vomit that was stuck on my chin and then rubbed her soiled hands against her pants. You're a mask. I gave her a confused look. (laughs) What's a mask? My mother turned to my father. Show him. He retrieved the bloody werewolf mask from the grass and slid it over the top of his head. As soon as it was on, his body began to change, taking on the attributes of an actual werewolf. When the change was complete, he ran up to me and roared in my face, spraying me with saliva. I closed my eyes and began to tremble, pissing my pants in the process. That wasn't necessary. My mother pointed her finger at my father, chiding him for scaring me. He took off the mask and tossed it back onto the ground, returning to his normal self as soon as it was off. I think it was. Now he knows how his friend felt before he killed him. My mother gave him a dirty look but didn't say anything else. Instead, she turned her attention back to me. We may look human on the outside, but inside we're different. We have abilities they don't possess. She stopped and held my gaze to make sure I was paying attention. What you just saw your father do is called masking. It allows us to take on the attributes of any mask we wear. I have worn masks before, and nothing like that has ever happened to me. I pointed at my father. That's because it only works on Halloween night. That's why we couldn't let you dress up and go trick-or-treating with your friends. Why wouldn't you just tell me the truth instead of lying to me all these years? I pulled away from her and turned my back to Joel's body. I couldn't bear to see it. We wanted you to have as normal life as possible. We were planning on telling you on your 18th birthday. (sighs) Why then? That's when the changes become easier to control. 
The sound of kids laughing drifted into the backyard, reminding us that the streets were filled with families out trick-or-treating. We can explain it all to him later. Right now, we need to figure out what to do about that. He nodded towards Joel's body. What do you suggest? I have an idea. He turned and walked up the steps to the back door. I'll be right back. A few moments later, my father returned. Clutched in his hand was a boning knife. What are you going to do with that? The knife was too small to dismember a body efficiently, making me question what he planned to do. Do you want to go to prison? Of course not. He knelt next to Joel's body. Well, the only way to prevent that from happening is to make people think Joel is still alive. After pulling off the clown mask, my father used the knife to start the delicate process of removing Joel's face. And the only way to make people think he's still alive... He turned and looked at me. ...is for you to become him for the rest of the night. I did not like the sound of that. Why can't one of you do it? I looked back and forth between my parents. You saw what happened when I put the wolf mask on? You won't have the same problem masking a human. My father continued to slice and peel Joel's skin away from his skull as he talked. You'll feel a little off, but you won't lose control like you did with the wolf mask. No, I I won't do it. Well, I suppose I could do it, and you could take my place. Well, what do you mean? I was going to use the wolf mask to dispose of the body. At first, I didn't understand what he was talking about, but then it hit me. He was planning on becoming the werewolf so he could eat Joel. When he saw the look of disgust on my face, he sighed. That's what I thought. A few moments later, he held the skin of my best friend's face out to me. When I didn't immediately reach out to take it, he added... You wanted to go trick-or-treating, right? He thrust the skin in my direction. Well, now's your chance. When you're young, being with elderly people can be more than a little unsettling. It's even more difficult when an older relative is struggling with physical problems. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mark Taus, we meet George, who is not happy about having to visit with his great aunt. You see, the stroke she suffered has left her acting, well, rather strangely. Performing this tale are David Alt, 
James Cleveland, Erica Sanderson, Andy Cresswell, and Ash Millman. So be patient with your elders. They really do mean well, even if you find yourself thinking, there's something wrong with Auntie Beth. The plate of biscuits always looks promising to George, but he's made that mistake before. Pink wafers with no crunch, chewy ginger nuts, and even the thought of chocolate bourbons induces a little bit of sick in his mouth. He wonders how anything in this house could be damp with the heating turned up so bloody high. His Auntie Beth leans in, half her mouth curled into a smile, and the other half doing something completely different. A question's coming, he knows it. A sit-off ensues. Nothing yet, just eyes drilling into his. He squeezes at the flesh under his legs, driving his back further into the softness of the chair and running his eyes over the odd-looking knick-knacks, filling nearly every inch of shelving. She shuffles closer, her breathing quick and nasally, as if something rattles inside her nostrils. He smiles, but secretly wishes for her to have a heart attack so this can all end. She edges forward again, giving him a close-up view of white chin fluff and, worse still, the half a dozen thick black hairs emerging from a globule her mother once told him was a beauty spot. To George, it looks more like a spider crawling out of a shit nugget. Unable to bear it any longer, George turns his gaze to the orange and red carpet, but he can still feel her watery eyes on him. Totally not fair. Any of it. He wills himself not to look up, but the carpet begins to move, patterns rotating, merging, spinning. He feels dizzy and lightheaded, but not like when the fair is in town. So damned hot, too. Thoughts turn to his friends, Zack and Lachlan, no doubt lounging in the comfort of their cool and dimly lit rooms, snacks spilling onto their desks, controllers in hand, and not a care in the world, focusing only on shooting as many motherfuckers in the head as possible. He glances to his mum for support, but she's talking to Uncle Rodney about how much petrol they get to the gallon. The loud clock on the mantelpiece, sounding like a ticking bomb from the old movies his dad sometimes watches, tells him they've only been there for 17 minutes, yet it feels like a lifetime. This sucks so much. He finally lifts his stare towards her just to see if she's stopped her gawk. But she hasn't. She opens the left side of her mouth, the other side all puckered and dead, sucking in some saliva before it escapes. Christ, she's going to talk again. His eyes move to the carpet once more. How's school going, Georgie? Georgie? Fourteen years old. He wonders whether he'll still be answering to it when he's thirty. Good. It's the same answer he gave the last three times she asked. He looks over to his mum again, but the bitch is still talking. Yeah, have to speak up, dear. I'm a bit hard of hearing in my left. It's good. School's good. That's good. Good. She moves closer still, her left eye performing a series of twitches, as though someone is tugging at the bottom lid with invisible cotton. Let's see those beautiful eyes, my boy. She follows this with another sloppy recoil of spit. Her words come out slurred these days, but he's getting better at picking them up. 
Don't be shy, Georgie. Let's see those peepers. Never again. Never, ever, ever again. He pinches his skin harder as he turns towards his auntie. A stroke, according to the doctors, but he overheard Uncle Rodney say they were very airy-fairy about the details. One thing's for sure, the old Auntie Beth never made his skin crawl. Beautiful. She wipes the other corner of her mouth with a bit of tissue. Such a handsome devil. Her eyes continue burning into him. Stop talking, Mum. Stop talking. He swallows hard, offering Auntie Beth another half-assed smile. It's the worst day ever, even beating the time his mum caught him in the back living room, pants around his ankles, strumming one out to the weather girl. I forgot my car keys, she had said, grabbing them from the fruit bowl and rushing out as though the house was on fire. The next time the urge came, he ensured it was a more controlled environment. Such strong legs, too. His school shorts are suddenly riding far too high up for his liking. He thinks perhaps Auntie Beth might be overdoing the vitamin tablets. Bet you have all the girls after you. It's too much to bear. The musty smell of the house, the stifling temperature, the stray hairs and the slurpy mouth. But it's the partially spread thick legs clad in tattered, crumpled brown tights and offering a tunnel into oblivion that melt his brain. Have you got any soda, Auntie Beth? It's as if she's in a deep trance, lost in a world full of youth and smooth skin. Eh? Soda. Remaining perched on the edge of the chair, she nods, glistening eyes still targeting him. He's asking for a soda, love. Shut up, you prick! Auntie Beth screams back without looking at him. Rodney's eyes grow wide and moist as he teeters on the verge of responding instead choosing to close his thin lips and bury his head in his hands. In contrast, George notes his mum's mouth is hanging wide open, but for once, no words escaping. The silence is unbearable. It's going to take a hero. Is it in the fridge? He finally pulls his hands from under his legs and readies them on the arms of the chair. The soda. She shakes her head as if bringing herself to, and with a groan, heaves herself to her feet. Already, George feels better, his eyes no longer needing to avoid the black hole that seemed to be eating its way towards him. Cola? Or busy orange pet? Cola, please. He waits for her to disappear through the doorway before adjusting his position in the chair. Moist with perspiration, the leather underneath offers a little fart as he plops himself back down again. How are you doing over there, buddy? His mum turns for an update, too. Good, thanks. Changed a bit, hasn't she? Not feeling ready for another smile just yet, George nods. Understatement of the fucking year. She's still Auntie Beth. Just a few gremlins in her head, so to speak. George nods again. Shut up, you prick. Still looking on the verge of tears, Uncle Rodney swallows hard. How's school? Nope, nope, nope. Can I use your bathroom? Of course, you know where it is. Upstairs, second on the left. It feels impossibly good to escape the confines of the chair, heading towards a few moments of freedom. Knowing he can likely get a good ten minutes out of this, he's pretty pleased with himself and knows. 
Shame his mum didn't let him bring his phone, he thinks, grabbing the banister and observing his reflection in the hallway mirror. She's getting worse, Joan. George lets his foot rest on the first step and arches his neck towards the doorway. What did the doctors say? They just feed me the same old crap. Nothing we can do. George thinks he hears Rodney's voice crackle a little at the end. Yesterday, I caught her giving me the middle finger from the kitchen window while I was hanging and washing out. Poor Beth. And poor you. I don't know what to do, Joe. This morning, she was uttering some rubbish about things being in her brain. She started hitting herself on the side of the head over and over. I don't mean a gentle tap. I mean proper going for it. I tried to stop her, but she started on me next. You need help, Rodney. She said she was going to kill me in my sleep. Jesus. I hate myself for it, Joan, but I give up. I can't do it anymore. The doctors gave me the name of this... It all goes quiet. Taking his cue that Auntie Beth is back with his drink, George bounds up the stairs like a ballerina, grimacing as they offer a creak halfway up. He swings himself around using the top railing and shuts the bathroom door behind him, breathing a sigh of relief as he leans against it. On the opposite wall, there's a plaque reading, The Best Seat in the House. Right now, he couldn't agree more. He reaches for the bolt, but only sees screw holes. The toilet mat's brown shag absorbs his feet as he takes his place, providing warmth and a whiff of disturbed urine. A small price to pay, he thinks, if it means avoiding the stare of those watery peepers. He drops his pants and begins thinking about Vanessa Taylor from gym class this morning, the droplet of sweat running from her neck towards her... Georgie? You've got to be fucking kidding me. With Vanessa now only a distant memory, the thought of holding his pecker with Auntie Beth and her giant black hole on approach makes him nauseous. He once read something about their gravity field being immense. A black holes, not old ladies, that is. I've got your drinky poos. Fuck off, you crazy old bat. Accompanied by Rodney's sheepish calls in the background, the inevitable squeak of the stairs brings a further tightening of the knot in George's stomach that lodged itself since first arriving at the frosted glass of Auntie Beth's front door. Georgie! I'm on the toilet, Auntie! The knock on the door sends his heart thumping and blood pumping in his ears. His world was so different only an hour ago, safe and familiar, something he knows he'll never take for granted again. Double math, and now this. It's just not fucking fair. Do you need any help, little Georgie? Georgie! I'm doing a poo, auntie. In disbelief, he watches the handle begin to turn. No, auntie. He thrusts himself from the supposedly best seat in the house and fumbles his pants back up. Oh, I've seen it all before, little Georgie. Frantically, he begins working at his zipper. Auntie, this is not cool. Come on. As her head pokes around the door, she lifts a finger to the center of her lips, a marker for two very different faces. I've got something to show you. I I think Mum's calling me. Her fingers coil around his, leading him towards a sliver of dull yellow light trying to escape from the darkness. Shit on a stick. The smell hits him before he's even through the door, 
a noxious concoction of cheap perfume and something far worse. A double bed takes up most of the room, pink sheets almost sickeningly garish enough to draw attention away from the patch of black on the left wall that seems to be spreading from the ceiling down. Almost. Bit pongy, isn't it, Georgie? Rodney, silly old bastard, says it's mould. Auntie Beth shuts the door behind her, prompting George to edge away towards the window, the room suddenly feeling more than a little claustrophobic. He follows the trail of thick black from the coving of the ceiling towards the antique mirror where it appears to thin out, disappearing behind the large oval frame supported by two ornate posts. I thought it was too at first, but I know better now. Auntie Beth reaches for the necklace hanging over one of the supports. She slips it around her neck and offers George a wink with her good side. Beautiful, isn't it? Found it in lost property at the community centre over on New Haven Crescent. She digs her chin into her neck, running her fingers over the globe pendant as she approaches. Got a cleaning job there once they finished the restorations and reopened after that awful incident. Words begin to rush over George. A glance outside and he imagines the smell of fresh air and the touch of the breeze. Another world. She continues moving towards him, shimmying from left to right, one finger circling the pendant and the other trailing across the duvet. It told me things, Georgie. George backs up until his spine presses against the window ledge, an awful thickness dwelling at the back of his throat. His mind feels heavy as if carrying the residue of a nightmare, but he's still dead in the center of this one. Only inches away, she leans in close and sucks on her spit. Now it's inside me, spreading like it did up the wall, revealing all its secrets. I'm going to kill him before he kills me, Georgie. Put some powder in his whiskey tonight and run the bread knife across his neck. It's hard to tell, but George thinks she's smiling. Over and over and over and over. There's nowhere else to go, trapped in a version of hell. The bed, the black wall, the smell, Auntie Beth's leaky mouth and glassy eyes. Eyes on the meringue-like swirls, he opens his mouth, but only a rasp emerges. She shuffles forward. What the... Cold hands clamp his face. It's what I wanted to show you. That nasally rattle, the beauty spot, and her eyes filling with black ink. Before he can find a scream, her dry lips are on his, thrusting and squirming, her fuzz tickling his soft cheek as bony hands pull his head into hers. Letting out a series of muffled cries, he grabs her shoulders and tries to wrestle her off, but she's a fucking powerhouse. Help! He clamps his lips together as tightly as possible, something cold trying to work its way into his mouth. Auntie Beth lets out a little moan, bringing him closer still, her cold flesh pressing against his. He can't hold. Something impossibly strong is finding its way through, prizing his lips apart. It's in. Oh fuck, it's in. But this is no tongue. George can feel tiny worm-like tendrils searching his mouth, wriggling their way towards God knows where and creating a bitterness that layers in the back of his throat. He swallowed a fly once, but this is much worse. Veins pop as he pushes against her, but she outweighs him at least two to one and isn't going anywhere. 
Unable to breathe, he starts thinking this is the way he's going to go, French kissing his Auntie Beth. Iciness begins running through his veins. A dizzying sensation brings black floaters to the edge of his vision. Pickle, where are you? The squeak of the stairs offers George hope. It feels as though their heads may merge into one, bound by whatever vileness leaks from her mouth to his. He shudders at the thought, or it could be the images suddenly flooding his mind that he knows have no right to be there. Only as the door begins to open is he released, pushed back into the window ledge with force, Auntie Beth and the bed offering a deep moan as they meet. What the devil? He tried to touch me. I, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> she snaps her head back towards George. <laughs> you did? You wanted a big old slice of Auntie Beth's cherry pie. That's enough! With that, Beth begins writhing on the sheets, hiking her dress up. Get it while it's warm, gents. As George is escorted from the room and down the hallway by Uncle Rodney, he hears his auntie begin to giggle, which turns into a guffaw, which turns into a choking rasp. His mum is waiting for him at the bottom of the stairs. Everything okay? She's had another turn, Joan. As they reach the bottom, Rodney shakes his head with exasperation. I think it's probably best you leave. Are you sure? Can't we help in any way? To the soundtrack of Auntie Beth's raucous laughter, George feels himself trembling. Something's not right. He sees things that aren't there, shadows moving against the gaudy wallpaper. He can hear faint whispers in his ears, bad things no child's ears should be privy to. Mum, I want to go home. Please, can we go... He stops mid-sentence, sucking back some saliva. George, that isn't funny. His mum's face twists into a scowl, eyes wide in that wait-until-I-get-you-home look. There's something wrong with Auntie Beth. Mimicking her like that is really low. George turns to the mirror to see his downturned mouth. Part of him wants to scream, but a greater part of him wants to scrape his mum's eyes out with a spoon and feed them to the dog for bringing him here. Picture this. One day you're watching a normal day go by, when all of a sudden you witness one of the most monstrous acts a person could conjure. You try to stop it, but you fail, and are left reeling with shock. But in this tale, shared with us by author Frank J. Orito, when the dust settles, you realize you're the only one who recalls the nightmare which just unfolded in front of you, and then you soon learn why that is. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mick Wingert, Lindsay Russo, Dan Zapula, Aaron Lillis, and Mike Delgadio. So understand that this tale is kind of hard to swallow, but there is method to the madness. After all, all God's creatures got reasons.
I swear. The heavyset man in the red tank top didn't look like a monster. He squatted in front of the stroller and waved at the child inside. The young mother, a pretty woman in a green blouse, smiled with pride. I was across the street, taking in the scene from where I sat in front of Java Jive. Mighty nice kid you got there, ma'am, I said, filling in the unheard dialogue. The kid did look cute, from what I could see. Little sailor hat peeking from the stroller. Probably only a bit older than my Ryan. I sipped my coffee. When I looked back up, Tank Top was holding the baby. He had a big grin on his face, but the mother wasn't smiling anymore. She put her hands out to take the child back. Tank Top ignored her. What the hell? The mom put a hand on Tank Top's forearm, her mouth moving fast. Give back the baby. I willed the action from where I sat, but my thoughts were no more effective than the mother's words. Tank Top winked at the woman. It was that slow kind of wink where you get your whole face involved. A get a load of me sort of wink. I could feel the teasing contempt. Then the man opened his mouth wider than should have been possible and shoved the crying baby's entire head inside. The mother screamed and grabbed at the baby's flailing legs, but the man in the tank top whirled away. One heavy arm lashed out at the woman while the other shoved the child further into his mouth. His lips and jaws stretched even wider to accommodate the narrow shoulders. I ran across the street, scene details popping in my mind like flashbulbs. A stroller turned on its side, a bottle of formula rolling toward the traffic. The baby eater lay on the sidewalk in a fetal position, protecting his meal from the horrified onlookers. A single leg protruded from the man's mouth, a tiny blue sock hanging half off the foot. I reached the sidewalk with no idea how I could help, but I pushed through the growing crowd anyway. The mother clawed bloody gouges in the baby eater's face. A bike messenger kicked the man, yelling each time his worn Timberland connected. Stop it, dude! As I got close, the baby eater rolled and scrambled back from the crowd on bleeding elbows until he pressed himself against the wall of Pizza Sola. Between his wide yellowed teeth poked five pink toes, all that remained of the child. Tank Top pushed them into his mouth. His hand disappeared up to his forearm, tamping down his obscene meal. I could hear the wet, rhythmic sound of the man swallowing. I grabbed him beneath the armpits and hauled him to his feet. You sick bastard! I launched my knee upward into the man's gut, hoping somehow to make him throw the child back up. Where were the police? An ambulance? Could they cut the kid out? The man lurched forward, wrapping me in a bear hug. He shoved his drool-slick cheek against mine. Forget it, man, I'm finished! The hell's wrong with you? Me? I tried to pull away. The baby eater let go and shoved me with both hands. I stumbled backward, straight into the mother in the green blouse. Oh, hey, watch it! I froze. The woman wasn't screaming anymore. She just looked annoyed. Your baby. I'm so sorry. What baby? The woman raised her hands, palms out, toward me, her voice placating now and a little nervous. I think you must have me confused with someone else. I'm gonna go now. Wait! The baby! That guy! 
A tall man stepped between me and the woman who didn't seem to remember that her baby had just been eaten. Dude, hey, back off. It was the bike messenger, the one who had kicked the baby eater. He put a hand on my shoulder. You been drinking, dude? The mother took the opportunity to hurry away. I looked around in a slow circle. The stroller wasn't on the street anymore. The crowd was gone. I spotted the baby eater leaning against the wall, staring at me. His face still glistened with a pink sheen of blood and saliva. Fear lit up the man's face, and he looked away. Did you see the baby? The bike messenger shrugged. No, dude. I think you need to sit down. Did you lose your kid? I shook my head. No. I'm all right. I wasn't. I walked to a nearby bus shelter and sat. What just happened? I looked back through the shelter's glass enclosure. The baby eater was gone. My heart slammed in my chest. Adrenaline still pumped through my system, making my stomach queasy. People walked by, taking in the spring air. No weeping mother. No police cars. Jesus Christ, did I beat the hell out of some guy for no reason? I leaned forward, elbows on my knees, and took a deep breath. I should call Janet. Hey, honey, I'm hallucinating people swallowing babies. Yeah, right. I was under a lot of stress. We both were. That's why she insisted I take some time for myself this afternoon. So what? All parents are stressed, but they don't all have waking nightmares. Unless something else is wrong. I leaned back with my eyes closed and imagined a future full of CAT scans and Thorazine. I'll sit here for a few more minutes, get my shit together, and then call. Janet would say go to the emergency room. I wondered if they'd let me leave. Someone sat down beside me on the bench. You remember me? The voice had the slightly high nasal accent of the true Pittsburgh native. I looked to my left and saw the balding, sweaty face of the baby eater smiling back at me. Shit! I sprang to my feet, fists clenched. My breath came in painful bursts. I wanted to hit the guy, wanted to run, wanted to know if the man sitting on the bench was even real. Ah, damn it. You remember all right. He rubbed a stubby-fingered hand over his mouth, a mouth that was wide, but nowhere near the obscenely gaping maw I remembered. It's okay. I saw you eat that kid. I gave the accusation in a stage whisper, aware of the people walking by. No, no. I know that's what it looked like, but... The man waved a hand in dismissal. It was more like, um, a magic trick, an illusion. You get me? I didn't reply, too upset to answer. I'm Doug Kozlowski. The man held out a large, meaty hand. I didn't shake it. Kozlowski shrugged. Yeah, I get it. Hey, I bet you could use a drink. Why don't you let me buy you one? I only stared at the man. Come on, kid. A minute ago, you thought you were ready for a rubber room Hilton, right? You're not crazy. This is good news. That got through to me. I'd been thinking right along those lines. Something tight in my chest loosened a little and my clenched fists opened. You're saying it was some sort of joke? That's right. Something like that. We'll go have a couple of drinks. I'll explain things. Life goes on. 
Kozlowski pulled his barrel-chested bulk upright and walked down Carson Street. I didn't want a drink, but I sure as hell needed answers. So, I followed. Irene's Barn Grill was an old-fashioned place. Lots of dark wood and only two beers on tap. Kozlowski pointed to a booth with high wooden dividers for privacy and hooks for your hat. I slid in. Kozlowski went to the bar and ordered. He came back with a bottle of beer and a tumbler of whiskey filled almost to the top. He set the glass in front of me. I got you triple. I picked up the drink, considering it. No, I finally said. You tell me what the hell just happened. Okay, here it is. You know how I said it was like a magic trick, me eating that baby? I nodded. It's a little more complicated than that. Uh, you know, you should really have that drink. I set the glass down. Suit yourself. Thing is... Kozlowski paused, an embarrassed smile on his lips. I ate the kid. You think you saw me choke down that baby because that's exactly what happened. At least you're not crazy. You said it was a joke. They were actors, weren't they? I'm probably already on YouTube's sickest home videos, right? You saw me do it. Do I look like a special effect to you? My head began to throb in a slow, painful rhythm. I squeezed my eyes shut. Maybe I'm still in the bus enclosure talking to myself. Hell, maybe I'm strapped down in some metal hospital already. I lifted the whiskey and took a deep swallow. The amber fluid burned down my throat realistically enough. But where did the fucking stroller go? Why did no one remember what you did except me? Ah, that's where the magic trick comes in. Except, no, not so much the trick part, you see. When I eat a kid, I eat them all. I'm not talking about the meaty parts. I eat everything, like cosmic shit everything. His first smile is nine months he spent giving his mom a heartburn. I even eat the Friday night his mom and pop put Marvin Gaye on the stereo and got it on, you get me? No. You're crazy. What's with you and crazy? Give it a chance, why don't you? I ate a baby on a city sidewalk in broad daylight. No one is looking for me. The mom doesn't even remember having a kid. Why? Because she never did. No stroller? She never bought one. I ate that kid right out of this world. No one's gonna come after me. Because no one knows it happened. I think you're screwing with me. I must have sounded as unsure as I felt. Unless I'm just nuts. Fine, fine. Go with the crazy theory if it keeps you from pounding on me again. He looked at me for a long moment and then gave an embarrassed half-shrug. You know, this is kind of nice. What's nice? I never get to talk about it with anybody. Oh, the whole kid-eating thing. Well, once, but pff, that didn't really count. I got a theory, you know. I took another drink thinking I should call Janet or just go straight to the hospital. But I didn't want to let go of being sane, not even if it meant this was real. I tried to speak calmly, but my voice broke. You have a theory about what? Why you eat babies? Sort of. It's more why God wants me to do it. You're blaming God? Sure. People blame God for all kinds of shit. Seriously, though. Why the hell else... Would I eat little kids? All God's creatures got a reason. 
You think a buzzard just loves the taste of all that dead stuff? No. He eats it because it's his, uh, what you call it, his nature. God's own flying garbage can. See? The buzzard, though, he got no brain to speak of. So, he never asks, what am I doing eating this crap? I'd rather have a steak and a nice potato. Me, I wonder. So, I got this theory. I don't believe in God. The whiskey was taking effect, softening the edges of my vision. After what you just saw, I'd think you'd have more of an open mind. I didn't have a ready answer for that. Anyway, here's my theory. Hitler. Kozlowski held his hands out in a see-what-I-mean gesture. Hitler? I shook my head. I don't think I'm following. (sighs) Hitler. Okay, you know how Hitler is like the worst guy ever, right? All these sci-fi writers always having people go back in time to kill him, but it just makes things worse, right? With me so far? Yeah, Hitler, bad dude. So these kids I eat, they must be worse. God gives me a hankering for babies that would be the next Hitlers. And I eat them. So, why didn't God have somebody eat the real baby Hitler? Fair point. I gotta assume, being a lowly functionary, I'm not privy to the big plan. Because if there ain't no reason, that means I'm just some sort of monster. And a man can't live like that. You are a monster. I can't explain that other stuff. The baby never existing afterwards shit, but you took a laughing little baby. Baby Hitler. A baby! And you ate him. You are a monster. Maybe God's monster if it makes you feel better, but still a piece of shit baby-killing monster. Kozlowski shook his head. You know, I met this guy once, like me. I mean, he did what I do. Another of God's monsters? Yeah, but he was a little like you, too. He didn't think there was a reason. I saw him eat this kid, a little girl, maybe six years old, pigtails and all. Fat little thing. Took for freaking ever. I talked to him afterwards like we're talking now. He tried to kill himself a few dozen times. Knives, nooses, bullets. He thought he was a monster and couldn't live with it. Even when he realized all that self-inflicted pain wasn't doing the job, he never stopped trying. It's bad enough to have to eat babies. No way I wanted to be like him. Poor bastard begged me to do it. Wait a second. The whiskey was thickening my words a little. What did he beg? He told me I was his replacement. That's why I could remember him eating a little girl. I straightened from my half-drunk slouch with enough violence to almost upend Kozlowski's beer bottle. He said I had to eat him. Then he could be done. I'm telling you, the sap was crying with relief at the idea. No fucking way am I your replacement. I got a kid of my own, for God's sake. Hey, I concur. You can only take this fate thing so far, right? Problem is... You saw what I did, and you remember me. I'm pretty sure that means you're next in line for the job. I'm not eating you. Kozlowski nodded. Damn right. I thought we'd try something different. He lifted the beer bottle as he spoke and slammed it against my head. I fell out of the booth onto the floor. I touched the side of my head and pulled away a blood-smeared hand. Kozlowski knelt over me. His distended mouth looked like the open end of a mop bucket. It gave his voice a deep, hollow tone. Relax, kid. In a little while, 
It'll be like you never existed. The bartender screamed. I scuttled backward as the tooth-lined maw descended toward me. Hold still! He reached down, scrabbling for my collar. I didn't know if I was crazy, dreaming, or maybe in line to become God's monster. But I did not want to be eaten by Doug Kozlowski. So I opened my mouth and lunged. Something expanded in my skull. Bones snapped and jittered. It hurt like hell for a second and then felt good, like a satisfying crack of the knuckles. Kozlowski's arm wedged in my throat almost to the elbow. We looked at each other for a long moment, and then I bit down hard. Flesh tore and bones snapped until my teeth came together with a click, and I swallowed. Kozlowski's hate-filled bellow of pain joined the bartender's screams. You don't even want the goddamn job, you stupid son of a bitch! Blood sprouted from his sheared-off forearm. I pulled myself upright, strength pouring into me from some unknown source. Kozlowski turned, spraying blood in an arc. He tried to run, but I grabbed him by the tank top straps. What I want is for you not to be here anymore. Then I swallowed Kozlowski's head down to the neck and began to chew. Eating Doug Kozlowski took the better part of an hour. I ate with a compulsive efficiency, never pausing, as if once I'd made the decision, I went on cannibalistic autopilot. The police came. Sirens blared. Nightsticks rained down on my back and head. I'm pretty sure someone shot me, but the attacks all seemed distant somehow, and I never stopped eating. Finally, there was nothing left. I took a deep breath and spat blood on the barroom floor. I stood and gazed down at myself, surprised I didn't look like a python that just ate a cow. A man stumbled into me, slipping on the pool of blood. It was a cop. He didn't even look at me. Instead, he motioned to the woman tending bar. You gotta clean up this spill. Someone's gonna kill themselves. The bartender looked from her book to the floor and sighed. I'll get a mop. While I watched, the blood grew pale. Just spilled beer now. I stood at the bar, catching my breath. There was no blood on my clothes. No gash in the side of my head where Kozlowski's beer bottle shattered. The bartender smiled at me. What do you have, buddy? I ordered a shot of whiskey. A single this time. I drank it slow and tried to think. Maybe if I'd really been crazy, I could have pretended it never happened. No Kozlowski, no baby from before. I just had some sort of incident, a psychotic break. But I knew with cold certainty I wasn't crazy. I was God's monster. I paid for the drink and walked out onto Carson Street. The sun sat lower in the sky, but it was still a beautiful day. An older woman, a grandma no doubt, moved toward me on the bustling sidewalk pushing a double stroller. Twins burbled away happily in the seats. I closed my eyes. Please no, please no, please no. When I opened them again, the woman had passed me and was halfway down the block. I didn't try to eat them. But what if they were just good kids? Future Gandhis? No, I can beat this thing. I'll resist it. 
Or go somewhere with hardly any people, an island maybe. It'll be a hard sell to Janet, but we would make it work. My phone buzzed in my pocket. I pulled it out. Janet's name flashed on the screen along with a picture of a boy in blue footy pajamas. I looked at my six-month-old son, and a spasm went through my body. I'd always been filled with love and pride when I saw Ryan, but now there was another feeling, stronger than both. Hunger. I put the phone back in my pocket without answering. Down 10th Street, a line of skyscrapers rose from the Golden Triangle. I thought of the man Kozlowski replaced, the man who couldn't accept being a monster. The man tried to stop himself. Knives, guns, nooses, Kozlowski had said. Maybe the guy just hadn't tried hard enough. Kozlowski never mentioned tall buildings in the litany of the man's attempts. The PPG tower looked to be about 40 stories high. It would do. For a start. Ah, podcasters. (laughs) A strange bunch of people. Especially the ones who make the shows with the creepy tales. (laughs) Even worse, those who make the ones with creepy true stories and urban legends and folklore. But in this tale, shared with us by author Mr. Michael Squid, we meet a podcaster who tires of talking about legends in his own area. He decides to venture farther away to discover the truth about a rather rocking scene. Performing this tale is Atticus Jackson. So we hope you'll rave about this story. Kick up your heels and join in. It's time to experience the Dancing Stone. I've been a huge fan of true creepy podcasts for some time. You know, the ones where the podcaster does some minimal Wikipedia research on a supposedly cursed item or location. After hearing loads of lore originating in my home state of Pennsylvania, I decided to give it a try myself. I saved up for a Tascam recorder and decided I'd actually head to local places throughout PA within reasonable distance to do an on-location podcast using field recordings and my own narration on the areas that are supposedly haunted or cursed or whatnot. I investigated an abandoned mental asylum, thinking it'd be gold, but it was just a party spot for high schoolers. There was absolutely nothing scary about it, And sure as hell no spooky voices or anything aside from crude graffiti and beer cans to explore. The second episode, I took a road trip to Hell's Hollow Wildlife Adventure Trail, where you can supposedly hear moans or screams. But it was also a bust. I tried to add some eerie music, but new faking sound effects would just be cheap and and authentic. My effort bombed fantastically but I decided I was going to try one more episode before giving in. 
I dug into the rarest and most obscure subreddits, Quora threads, and message boards in search of anything creepy within reach that hadn't been covered to death. On one such message board, I found a short thread mentioning a place in Lancaster where people seemed to dance in a trance-like state. The post mentioned people dancing around a stone pillar in a way that left the user deeply disturbed, yet it didn't go into much detail. I might have dismissed it as some newfangled pagans or folk dancers doing their thing, or even a film shoot. The thing is, the person who'd posted the inquiry about it mentioned they were going to check it out the next time they were in the area. I clicked their username to see an extensive post history that stopped abruptly after that post, nearly a week earlier. A little more digging in username searches led me to find people had voiced concern for the person, who seemed to have gone missing at least from their previously ubiquitous online presence. I figured it sounded interesting enough to at least be worth the two-hour drive out. This would be episode three. There were few specifics in the original post in terms of a lead to the actual location, if it did exist at all. A crooked tree in a large grain field was a marker, about 15 minutes from town. Beyond that tree, which was visible from the road, was a hill, and beyond that, a little dip of a valley where a stone pillar seemed to have emerged from the ground. Dark stone, three meters high, no other descriptors. I drove around for hours, and my hope waned when nothing but farmhouses, pastures, and housing developments were to be found. I began to think it was all just some elaborate hoax or some kid messing around. But then I saw a crooked tree so out of place I knew it had to be the one. A gnarled tangle of branches that looked so dead, I couldn't imagine it ever having been alive. I found the shoulder closest to the tree, a few hundred meters out, and exited my car. I found the tree from the posting, a telltale marker like some eldritch tangle of dead branches straight from a Tim Burton movie. So funny on a peaceful spring day. A tree can look so damned evil. I always try to embellish the creepiness of things, when in actuality it was just a dead tree. Nothing anyone hasn't seen a thousand times. I was about to continue my silly little dictation when I heard a faint sound from somewhere off in the distance. It sounded like singing. I'll spare the hammy dictation I delivered into the recorder as I ascended the subtle grade of the hill towards the leafless tree. I huffed along, realizing how out of shape I was as I closed the distance to the tree. And that singing became clearer as well. A chorus of voices singing a simple melody that overlapped in different time signatures, like a round. It was lovely, but at the same time a bit unnerving, especially out in the middle of nowhere. When I reached the tree on the hilltop, I was then given a view of the dip in the grassy field where the singing was emanating from. A few hundred meters further, where the land dipped slightly into a valley, there was a tall black pillar of stone far darker than slate. It looked almost like powdered black glass, perhaps obsidian even. Around the rectangular tower danced a dozen men and women, some in their late teens and some in their twilight years. The people were wearing standard clothing, jeans, dresses, sneakers, boots, no robes or religious garb of any sort. 
though they all smiled and looked blissful in expression. Something about the scene left me anxious beyond reason. I watched for a few minutes, dictating the scene into the recorder, praying the distant singing would pick up on the mic. I'm going to check it out, was all I could muster into the mic when I tried to keep the dialogue going. I hadn't stuttered since going to a speech therapist in the sixth grade. Any embarrassment or regret that this episode would be a bust was wholly consumed by the overwhelming uneasiness welling up from within me. My bowels growled and my stomach squirmed. My heart pulsed heavy in my chest. I took a deep breath and began the walk towards the joyful scene on that bright April afternoon. I tread slowly across the grass, only then noticing how much more vibrant and tall it seemed to grow closer to the stone. Sure enough, there was a gradient where the perimeter was marked by dead or dying trees and yellow, dead grass on the outskirts, whereas the center grew more and more alive. Aside from a rut beaten down by those dancers, the grass at the base of that monolith grew nearly a foot tall. I tried to dictate this. The, 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 I stuttered like a broken record before shutting my mouth. I'd have to go and dub over the dialogue later, I figured. With every step towards the ring of gleeful dancers, I began to notice other details that weren't previously visible. The men and women twirling around the black stone had tears running down their smiling faces. Their arms and legs seemed to bend in painful-looking angles with occasional violent spasms. I swear, I could even hear the occasional pop or crack from a hundred yards out. It sounded like bone. My attention shifted when I spotted other figures walking towards the stone from other directions. There were two women not far from each other walking towards the stone from the east, and an elderly man limping towards it from the northwest. I was approaching it from the south. All I could think of at that moment was that the large stone seemed to be drawing them towards it like a magnet of sorts. When I looked back at the stone, my stomach dropped. There were only eight people encircling the stone with their bizarre dancing. I swore there were at least a dozen the last time I counted. I flinched from a loud crack that echoed through the valley. The source was a woman in what I first thought was a long white dress, but at this distance was obviously a nightgown. Her arm was flopping around at sickening angles, cracked free at the elbow. Her lower jaw was clearly disconnected as well, and the bobbing maw of teeth flapped about as it twisted and bounced in horrendous ways. With every step towards that stone, more subtle, and gruesome details became clear. Firstly, every one of the dancing people seemed to be emaciated and sunburnt. Blistering lips and red flaky cheeks shined from baking in the sun for God knows how long. Every one of them had clearly soiled themselves as well. And that song, lovely and minimal and hypnotic, wasn't being sung so much as moaned in an almost sexual manner. Another loud crunch drew my attention to an elderly man who'd fallen to the ground. 
leaving only seven dancers. I nearly vomited when I realized the crunch was from his collapsing ribs. They were dancing on top of him, on top of the fallen others. My body was racked with shivers as I was then close enough to see the flecks of burgundy and crimson speckling the legs of the dancers. Their feet were all red and wet with blood. I watched as one of the two women coming from the east arrived at the circle and joined in without a pause. A ghastly grin spread onto her face as she pirouetted and twirled in the mash of fallen bodies in that foul ring. She was maybe mid-thirties, curly red hair that bounced with her fluid steps. She looked like she could be my aunt, a clean-cut woman ripped from a routine by the pull of whatever dark phenomenon this was. I decided then to get the hell out of there. My left foot continued on, followed by my right. I stared at the stone in horrified captivation as the realization washed over me like ice water. My feet were carrying me forward towards that godforsaken stone. I'd lost control over my body. I tried to scream, but nothing happened. I shouted in my mind to run, but my feet trudged forth, one in front of the other. I was going to end up a paste of innards in that gory circle around the stone, and it was painfully clear then. Still, I could not pull myself away. I know I would have died in that field had it not been for my alarm. I set daily reminders to keep on top of important things I keep forgetting. This was for returning books to the library before they closed and the late fee would start racking up. So yes, my fickle concern over a late fee saved my life. Something about the annoying digital alert interrupted that disturbingly powerful trance that drew me in like a moth to flame. I was unable to stop walking, but I was able to adjust my course. There was a gravitational pull around that dancing stone. I know I barely escaped the event horizon of it all as my path bent slightly to the left. Before I was able to fully turn around and eventually walk back towards my car, I saw things that will stay with me forever. I saw the amalgamation of twisted, broken limbs being stamped into the ground. There were dozens, if not hundreds of completely pulverized dead. The smell of coppery blood and putrefaction and rot were beyond description, but it pervaded my nostrils, and I don't think it will ever fully leave. I saw small digits in the mess of gore mashed into the earth, remnants of children's hands and skulls of babies, teeth and hair and organs drenching deep into the ground. I've never been as relieved in my life as when it was finally out of my peripheral vision. I wasn't able to control my feet until I was nearly back to my vehicle. With shaking hands, I unlocked the door and got in. I locked my gaze on the road ahead and started the ignition. 
cramps stabbed my thigh muscles from whatever Herculean efforts they'd applied to divert their final destination. I sped off like a bat out of hell, and I blasted whatever the radio could give me to get that earworm of hypnotic droning singing out of my head. My stutter hasn't gotten better. I can barely speak at all. The podcast dreams shattered. I haven't been able to stop shaking since that day. Every night, I stay awake as terror swirls in my mind, knowing very well what I'll see when exhaustion finally sucks me into a deep, dark sleep. I'll see the wide grins and flailing, broken limbs of those people. The collapsed faces under dancing heels stained red with blood. And that black plaque of death planted in that otherwise calm valley. I'll see the dancing stone. And all I can think of is how so desperately I want to go back. In our final tale, we meet a group of housemates who spend a lot of time together. Not by choice, mind you. No, they're together because of pandemic lockdowns. <laughs> Remember them? And in this tale, shared with us by author Gemma Amor, as the lockdown drags on, the friends' tolerance for each other wanes until a rather strange discovery in the house affects all of them quite deeply. Performing this tale are Andy Cresswell, Penny Scott Andrews, Jake Benson, James Cleveland, David Alt, and Guy Woodward. So try to keep it together. Remember, you're friends. There's no need to let anything come between you, even if that thing is the diamond. It was while we were in lockdown that we found the diamond. The size of a man's thumbnail, it was a deep, bloody crimson in color. According to the internet, this was because of a defect that meant light passed through the diamond's deformed internal structure in an odd way, bending and exhibiting as red. We still had the internet then. We'd been in lockdown only four weeks and the world still functioned, to a certain extent. We had food, electricity, Wi-Fi, cell phones. We had each other. At that point in time, we considered this a good thing. The diamond changed that. There are some people who just can't quit each other. Even though it hurts, even though it makes them both miserable, they just can't sever that tie. That was Lou and I. It wasn't a question of love. We had plenty of that. But sometimes, love isn't enough. 
no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't seem to make a relationship stick. And boy, did we try. Each encounter did more damage. Each attempt to make it work only served to make us more tired, more stressed, more miserable. We had an idea in our heads of how we thought we should be. Lou and Mike, in it for the long haul. This idea dominated everything, led us to ignore all the red flags that told us we were not compatible. Eventually, desperate for a solution, we did what all idiots in love do. We moved in together. Or rather, Lou moved into the house I rented with my friends, all of whom were men. Pete, Tom, Chris, and Adam. The lads were not pleased to welcome a female into the house, but I didn't care. I wanted her with me, despite everything. I wanted to make it work. I just couldn't let her go. But it was no use. Over time, we became a sad, ragged duet, singing an off-key song of regret. We admitted defeat three days before Pete came home from his trip to Europe. We'd had a good run, two years this time around. It hurt, but we agreed it was for the best. We would break up and Lou would move out. I would stay where I was, renting with the lads. That was the plan anyway. The plan went to shit when the contagion started. Pete returned from his ill-timed Euro trip with a sore throat and a stomachache and went rapidly downhill from there. We didn't take his symptoms very seriously at first. We jeered as he took himself off the bed with a fever, chills, a headache and a tight chest. In those early days, you see, we hadn't been warned about the virus. We hadn't been told what to look out for. And so Pete's symptoms didn't present as anything too intimidating. Within days, however, he became a textbook case. And when his results came back positive... Our lives changed forever. We were told to stay indoors, to self-isolate or risk infecting others. We did as we were told, begrudgingly. We found quarantine hard. We missed the pub, the gym, working, sports and decent coffee. I missed my freedom and space to think away from Lou. Chris missed his boyfriend. The others missed tinder and chasing skirt. We stopped caring about clothes and slobbed about in our underwear. We watched a lot of porn, and after day five, stopped using cutlery. Using a knife and fork felt so unnecessary somehow, like an affectation of an era gone by, like wearing a top hat and tails to dinner. Our resentment died when we realized the scale of the catastrophe taking place outside our comfortable walls. The contagion was voracious. Within two weeks, it had gone global. People died by the thousands. The country closed down. Schools, bars, restaurants, shops, cinemas. Everything shut overnight. It was shocking because we lived in the center of a large city. Seeing the commerce and bustle grind to a halt within the space of a few hours was brutal. The streets we could see from our windows stopped funneling cars and became wide, empty promenades upon which the occasional lonely ghost wandered. The population was allowed one walk per day, exercise acceptable as long as everyone kept a strict six feet apart from each other, 
Policemen patrolled in cars with Orwellian diligence, watching, always watching, ready to enforce the rules. And we stayed indoors, stewing in each other's company like ripe fruit stewing in the harsh sun. We could hear Pete coughing through the walls of his bedroom at night. A dry, hacking cough that went on and on and ruined everyone's sleep. We became paranoid, disinfecting every surface in the house with bleach and wipes and washing our hands dozens, if not hundreds of times a day. Time passed. Our anxieties progressed. We tried to be kind to Pete, tried to make sure he stayed hydrated and fed, but his room stank like sickness and we found it hard to stay in there long with him. We drew up a roster, took it in turns to share Pete duty, to take him food and water and wipe down the toilet, shower and sink after he'd used it. He was too weak to clean up after himself. Pete stared at us with listless, red-rimmed eyes for the few moments of every day we allowed ourselves exposure to him. We could tell he was hurt by our ostracization. Eventually, I felt so guilty that I moved the TV in my room to his, so he could distract himself in a way that didn't involve staring at the ceiling for 12 hours a day in between coughing fits. I showered for a full 40 minutes after I'd done this, convinced I was covered in deadly germs. Lou, who hadn't moved out before the pandemic hit, was not impressed by my generosity. But Lou was rarely impressed by anything I did anymore. And as the days wore on, she became more and more vocal about it. I didn't blame her, not at first. We had been trapped in an odd limbo state, no longer in a relationship, but still living together in the most intense fashion. We had to talk to each other every day, share a bed in a small room, maintain our separation amidst our isolation. She stopped smiling, and I missed it. When we first met, she would smile all the time. I was blown away by that smile, which always started small and then grew slowly, as if she was constantly on the verge of some profound realization. Unable to socialize with her own friends, she found mine poor company. Our banter seemed harsh and childish to her. She started to roll her eyes every time one of us opened our mouths to say even the most innocuous of things. The lads grew frustrated with her in equal measure, although most of them tried to disguise it for my sake, knowing that her behavior was not my fault and also knowing that I still cared deeply for her. Most of them, except for Tom, who did little to hide his distaste whenever Lou spoke. It all came to a head the day we found the diamond. We were sitting around in the living room in silence. I was trying to read a book, Chris was sketching in his pad and everyone else stared at their phones, mindlessly thumbing back and forth through social media feeds. There was a heavy, bored silence amongst us that Lou broke with an enormous sigh. Someone burned the kids' playground down in St. Paul's. Her gaze remained locked on her screen. She was beginning to get phone jowls from staring at the thing so much, and I didn't like it. I could see a glassy-eyed fragility to her that hadn't been there at the start of quarantine. I realized with a sinking heart that depression was setting in, 
starting to eat her up. I had no idea what to do about it, and this frustrated me more than anything because it made me feel futile, defunct. She continued, her voice low and loaded. Four garages, three warehouses, and the children's playground at St Paul's Community Centre were set alight last night by arsonists, according to this. Nobody replied, because there wasn't much to say in response to this cheerful update. She carried on like a dog with a bone, not reading the room at all. Oh, and the corner shop on Broadway was looted too. They took everything that wasn't nailed down, apparently. The quiet in the room deepened as we tried to steel ourselves against her doom merchantry. Looks like there won't be much of the world left when we get out of quarantine. She looked up from her phone to see if anyone was listening. I weakly tried to offer some encouragement. I know it's hard, Lou, I said as gently as I knew how. But we have to try and stay positive. We can't let it get to us. It'll be over at some point. We just have to wait it out. Lou's melancholy turned to anger, lightning quick. I don't want to wait it out any longer, Mike. I want to go outside. I want to see my friends. Hug them. I tried again, not wanting this to escalate any further, especially not in front of the lads. I'm your friend. You can hug me. (laughs) You'll never be my friend. Not really. You've been inside me too many times. Kind of precludes friendship, don't you think? I snapped my mouth shut because that stung. Then I tried again. I don't know why, but I always felt like there was something salvageable between us, even when she was being like this. If you say so. But you can't wallow in it, Lou. You need something to do, something to take your mind off everything. You're thinking too much. Thinking too much. There are 93,000 cases of the virus confirmed in the country today. But only 167 of those are based here, Lou. I knew the statistics. I kept an eye on the rolling data just like the rest of us did. And only 27 deaths so far. It's the lowest in the country. And one of those 27 could easily be one of us. I have asthma. You're immunocompromised. And Pete is half dead already. Haven't you heard him fucking coughing every night? She was working herself up to a panic attack. What she needed now was calm reassurance and a distraction. What she got instead was Tom. Put a sock in it, Lou. He stretched, yawning. I'm tired of how fucking miserable you are all the time. There was a shocked moment of silence as Lou processed what had just been said. The rest of us froze, blinking in disbelief. What did you say? I put my book down and got ready to intervene. Tom took a deep breath. A fighting breath. I said... Put a fucking sock in it, you miserable cow. 
He looked relieved as he spoke the words, as if he'd been biting his tongue for a long, long time. Hey. I felt anger rise up inside me and tried to swallow it down. I could not afford to lose my cool, not cooped up like this. Tom was a friend, and he was stressed and worried like the rest of us. Lou was not at fault, but I knew how grating her moods could be. Don't speak to her like that. Or what? Tom stood up. He topped me by five or six inches. I'd never appreciated how freakishly tall he was until he squared up to me in that small room. Friends, I told myself. We're all friends here. Or nothing, Tom, I said, refusing to be drawn. I clenched my fists regardless. He erupted. Come off it, mate. She's a fucking nightmare. We all think so. All she does is mope around, criticising everything and everyone and crying when we get annoyed at her. Why you didn't dump her properly years ago, I'll never understand. She makes you look like a right fucking doormat sometimes. And let's not even get started on the eggs. I swallowed again, my anger still rising. Eggs? What eggs? Tom swiped the hand in the direction of the kitchen. Who do you think finished all the fucking eggs off this morning? She did. Fuck knows when our next food delivery will arrive or even if they have any eggs. She knows I'm on a high-protein diet. She didn't even ask me. They're communal eggs. That's enough. I felt my anger building, building. I refused to fight over eggs. It was fucking ridiculous. So I tried to keep a lid on my temper, but both Tom and Lou were making it difficult. Tom had the bit between his teeth now and wouldn't be silenced. She should lay off him anyway, if you ask me. Getting a bit chubby. He blew out his cheeks to mimic Lou's weight gain. My mouth dropped open. Had he really just said that? Had he really just fucking said that? Fucking hate you! Lou threw her phone at Tom. He ducked and it slammed into the wall behind him, knocking a picture free of its hook. This sent Tom into an apoplexy. How is that fucking helpful? He picked up the phone and threw it back at Lou with all the force he could muster. How, you psychotic bitch! The device glanced off her cheek and she hissed in surprise and pain. I saw a small welt reddening there. Not a big injury, but enough to hurt. All the fight went out of Lou and she sank her head between her knees, sobbing. I snapped. Not another fucking word, Tom! It killed me to see Lou, my Lou, in such a state. I had a fleeting memory of the night we'd first met, her smile, the glint in her eyes. She'd ridden me like a rodeo horse that night, her on top and me underneath, looking up at her as she shuddered her way through what I thought at the time was the sexiest thing I'd ever seen in my life. She didn't look so sexy now. Greasy hair stuck to her face, snot and tears pasted across her cheeks lips raw from worry 
and a long red wheel on her cheekbone. She looked 20 years older than her age, and my heart ached for her. She whispered then, to nobody in particular, I miss women. I just want to talk to someone sympathetic. I just want a hug. Boo-hoo, cry me a fucking river. Chris and Adam got to their feet too. Pack it in, Tom. Tom was perhaps closer to Adam than anyone, and usually deferred to him. Apologise. You're being an asshole, Tom. Sort it out. Tom looked at the three of us, his chest heaving. Then at Lou, who sat like a limp rag on the couch. He relented. Fine. I'm sorry, Louise. You just get on my nerves, that's all. As apologies went, it was a shitty one. Lou leapt up as if someone had placed a rocket under her. You're a piece of shit, Tom Ward. Always have been, always will be. She stormed out of the room, kicking at the skirting board by the door as she went. A section of the board, already loose, clattered wearily to the floor in defeat. Great. Tom crouched down to pick it up and hammer it back in place with his fists. Chris shook his head. That was your fault. That was totally uncalled for. I said nothing. I didn't trust myself yet. I wanted to go after Lou, but also knew that the best thing for her was some space so she could cool down. So I stayed with the others, trying to get a hold of myself, watching as Tom grabbed the skirting board and then paused in the act of refitting it, frowning at the hole in the wall behind the board. Huh. There's something in the wall down here. He grunted as he got onto his knees. He shoved his face closer to the hole, arse sticking up in the air like he was praying. What? What sort of thing? I don't know. I was amazed at how quickly he'd moved on from the argument, as if it hadn't happened at all. As if removing Lou from the room had reset the mood somehow. Let me see. Adam went over to where Tom was inspecting the wall. He also got to his knees, shoving Tom out of the way for a better view. He extricated his phone from his back pocket and turned the flashlight app on, shining the bright little beam into the hole for better visibility. Fuck me, you're right. He put his hand into the wall and it disappeared up to his wrist. I think there is something. He pulled his arm out. I can't reach it. Not with these big old guns anyway. He flexed his arms and his gym-bred biceps popped. He grinned a shit-eating grin and winked at me. He's a skinny fucker like Mike to reach in there. I glared, still raw about the argument that everyone seemed so keen to forget. Adam smiled back, and I could see what he was trying to do. Move us all on with a welcome distraction. 
Fine, I said at last. Then I dropped to my knees and pushed my arm into the hole in the wall. To begin with, I couldn't feel anything except for rough masonry. So I pushed further until I found myself cheek to paintwork, my arm gone right up to the shoulder. Christ, how big is the fucking cavity between these walls? It shouldn't really be a cavity at all. This is a Victorian house. Cavity walls weren't that common back then. Adam yawned to show how uninteresting he found this. <sighs> Hurry up, Mike, before Chris bores me to death. <laughs> I stretched further, gritting my teeth, and finally the very tips of my fingers brushed against something. Something cold, metallic, shaped like a loop. A handle of some sort? I used my last tiny bit of momentum to strain further forward, curling the tips of my fingers over the handle like a grab claw, and then slowly pulling the thing out of the cavity in the wall. A hush descended as the object emerged into the light of day. It was a box. It was made of tin, like an old biscuit tin with handles at each end. There was a metal clasp on the front, with a padlock that was small and red with rust. Adam went to fetch our toolbox. When he came back, he looked worried. Pete sounds pretty bad. We could all hear him then, coughing through the walls. He did sound bad. He sounded like he couldn't catch his breath. Maybe we should call the doctor again. Tom shrugged. I said it would take a while for him to get better. He rooted around in the toolbox for some pliers, disinterested in Pete's plight. For the second time that day, I felt an intense flash of dislike. Tom had always been selfish, but quarantine was bringing out the worst in it. I held on to the box, frowning at Tom, but speaking to Adam. I'll call them again in a bit. Adam nodded. Tom, armed with some pliers with a sharp cutting edge on the inside of the jaws, set to work on the padlock, while I held the box steady. It didn't take much to snip through the slim shackle of the lock, which fell to the floor with a clatter. Tom nodded in satisfaction, and Adam rubbed his hands together, grinning like a teenager. Hope it's vintage porn. It's gotta be else, why would he have been stuffed way back in the wall so far? Bring on the Victorian muff. <laughs> with clumsy fingers, I undid the clasp. The lid squeaked up. We all peered in. Inside the box was another box, like an engagement ring box. It was made of velvet with an ornate catch on the top. I carefully opened the catch and revealed a beautifully cut blood-red stone the size of my thumbnail sitting on a bed of white satin. 
Well, fuck me. As I stared at the thing, my heart thumping in my ears, I realized I couldn't have put it better myself. I shivered. It was as if someone was standing behind me, breathing on the back of my neck. My arms came up in goose flesh, and I shuddered again. And the diamond watched me from its pristine bed. The duel sent us into a frenzy of internet activity. It has to be worth something. Tom snatched the jewel and held it up to the window so that the light shone through it. Inside the stone, tiny floors hung suspended, like motes of dust in a bloody sunbeam. I held my hand out for it, feeling twitchy, and Tom reluctantly gave it back. Let's keep it safe in the box, shall we? I snapped the catch shut over the gemstone as quickly as I could. I felt uncomfortable letting it out of my control and realized I'd been holding my breath as Tom had played with it. Once it was back in its case, I met Tom's eyes. I saw something ugly there. Whatever it was, it was gone in seconds, smoothed over with practiced ease. Watch him, I told myself, lowering my gaze. He'll steal it without a second thought. I blinked, surprised. Where had that thought come from? I set the gem box on our dining table and we all stood around it. Then we pulled out our phones and started searching for information on red jewels. I was so engrossed I didn't hear Lou coming into the room behind me. Are you all doing? We all jumped, startled. Christ, Lou, what's wrong with you? A bit of warning next time. I said more harshly than I intended to. She came and stood next to me, frowning. What's that? She reached for the box. Hey, hands off. I moved to block her. The others all did the same, forming a protective ring around the jewel. Lou reared back, looking hurt. What? What is it? I shook my head. Why is she always interfering? The thought surprised me. It was as if a, a meaner, sharper version of me was starting to take over my internal dialogue. Feeling like a horrible person, I forced myself to climb down a little. I opened the box and showed her the red stone sitting inside. What is that? We found it. We're trying to figure out if it's worth anything. For the first time in weeks, Lou smiled. Uh, I think... It's a red diamond. How can you possibly know that? I didn't like the way Lou was looking at our discovery. 
Her knowing about it implied some sort of shared ownership, and it already felt as if too many of us had a claim on it. Tom snorted in derision, <laughs> but I saw him type Red Diamond into the search engine on his phone. I used to be a mineral and gemstone nerd when I was a kid. I could tell she was itching to reach out and touch it. It's like a normal diamond, only the red colour is due to a rare occurrence in the atomic structure. I raised my eyebrows. So did Chris and Adam. Tom peered into the screen of his phone as if he was about to fall headlong into the device. In the background, we heard Pete coughing again. This time it sounded far worse than we'd ever heard him sound before. I was pretty sure I could hear him groaning too, only for some reason, it didn't bother me like it should have. Shall we go to him? The others yawned. No, he'll live. Tom nodded in agreement. Lou didn't even appear to have heard us. She just stared at the red diamond. We have to try and figure out if it's real. It was an echo of a thought I'd had myself not long before she'd come into the room. Figure out whether or not the diamond was a fake, and then decide what I was going to do with it. You mean, we? My internal voice said. What we are going to do with it? The thought made me feel ill and jealous. According to the internet, there are a number of ways to tell whether or not a diamond is real. Adam read aloud from an article he'd found. Number one, place the diamond in front of your mouth and fog it up with your breath. A real diamond won't allow condensation to stick to the surface. I winced as Chris reached out and gripped the diamond. Every time someone else touched the thing, it was like a punch in the stomach. I kept my arms to myself with difficulty, desperate to snatch the jewel back. Get a grip, Mike, I said silently. Don't give anything away. We watched as Chris breathed on the diamond, and I tried not to think about the virus, about any germs Chris had sticking to something so beautiful. His breath made the surface of the gemstone opaque for a split second. Then it cleared. No moisture remained. Next test. I noticed Tom was shifting from foot to foot, as if warming up, getting ready to run. I studied his face as covertly as I could. The fucker was planning. I could see he was. He was turning things over in his mind, mapping out escape routes. Over my dead body. I thought and my eyes went back to the red stone. Number two, drop it in a glass of water. Real diamonds sink because of their density. 
Lou went to fetch a glass and we heard the kitchen tap run. She came back, eyes fixed on the jewellery box before she'd even come fully into the room. We dropped the diamond into the glass. It sank to the bottom. Lou let out a small gasp of satisfaction, lifting the glass to her face. For a split second, I thought she might swallow the water down, diamond and all, in one gulp. Her hands trembled slightly around the tumbler. I retrieved it quickly, upending the glass and pouring water everywhere in my haste to put the diamond back in its box. I heard Adam and Chris exhale behind me. Now what? Tom shifted on the spot again. A powerful urge was growing in me. It was the urge to punch Tom square in the mouth. I shook my head, feeling drunk. What is the matter with me? It was then that we heard Pete calling for us. It was a weak rasp, but we heard it as we stood there. We roused slowly, as if waking from a deep and bitter sleep. We looked at each other. You go check on him. Tom reached out for the jewellery box. I'll look after this. In your dreams. I held it away from him. Adam intervened. We'll all go together. He spoke more calmly than he felt, if the sweat pouring down his temples was anything to go by. I'll hold on to it for now. It's my turn anyway. Since when do we take turns? Since now. Adam took the box from me, gently but firmly. As he did so, I felt an overwhelming wave of sadness and loss wash over me, as if my heart had been broken from the inside out and was now swimming around inside my veins. Little sharp splinters working their way into my extremities. Just for a little while. He patted my shoulder. I flinched, not wanting to be touched by him. At that moment, I hated him. He had something that belonged to me. Before anyone could argue further, he turned and made his way to Pete's room. Silently, we all followed. Not because we were worried about Pete. We followed so that we didn't lose sight of the diamond. Pete was dead by the time we got to him. From what we knew of the virus, it mutated as it jumped from person to person. 
Pete's particular variation had manifested suddenly as a series of large nodules sprouting out of his skin, clustering tightly around his neck and mouth. Which is why his strangled coughs and gasps for air had sounded so peculiar at the end. As he lay there, frozen in what must have been his final seizure, head back, eyes wide, mouth open even wider, I could see a large clump of fleshy red nodules blocking his airway, filling his mouth, forcing his jaws open. They must have grown rapidly and all at once, choking him as he lay there in a fevered, already weakened state. He was fine when I last checked on him. Tom made a bored noise deep in his throat. We closed the door. None of us felt sad or shocked or anything really. We all just wanted to get back to the diamond. Adam still held the gem box. Clumped together outside Pete's room, we watched him like a hawk in case he made a run for it. But something felt off. I did a swift head count to double check. Me, Adam, Chris, Tom, no Lou. With a sinking feeling, I realized that she had seen her opportunity. My instinct told me she was about to take it. Instinct was right. A tiny movement at the edge of my vision, my bedroom door opening just a crack. An eye peered out. And then the door yanked open and Lou ran at us full speed on light bare feet. While we'd been preoccupied with Pete, Lou had crept into the kitchen and armed herself with a long, sharp kitchen knife. Her face, as she held the knife high above her head, was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Twisted, frenzied, wild, completely disconnected from anything human. With a crazed roar, she launched herself at Adam, who clutched the gem box close to his chest and only registered her presence at the very last moment. He had little time to defend himself with his free arm before she brought the knife down on his face. I heard a wet slice and smack and a faint crunch. Adam's nose breaking under the impact. He fell backwards, the knife deeply embedded below his right eye. And a part of me thought distantly that we should be helping him. I thought this but did nothing. Neither did the others. Lou's momentum sent Adam crashing over. The box flew from his hands, hit the wall, dropped and broke open. The diamond shot out of the box, bounced and rolled across the floor. I dove for it, terrified that it would disappear down a crack in the floorboards. So did Tom and Chris. I was aware, while this was happening, that Lou was stabbing Adam over and over again, grunting with effort as she did so. 
blood sprayed into the air and decorated the corridor with artistic streaks of arterial bloom. She must not have realized that Adam no longer had the diamond. She shrieked with each thrust of the knife. Give it to me! Give it to me! Tom, the biggest and fastest of us, got to the diamond first. I felt true anguish flood my body as his hand closed around it. Then he was on his feet, pushing past us, jumping over the bloody mess that was Adam and kicking at Lou as he ran past her, headed for his own room. His door slammed. We heard furniture drag across the floor. He had barricaded himself in. Silence descended. With the diamond out of sight, I thought we might feel its pull a little less. But if anything, the desire to seize it grew stronger with the knowledge that it was now in Tom's control. I realized suddenly that I was drenched in sweat. Not from fear or adrenaline, but sheer longing. Lou got to her knees coated from head to toe in Adam's blood. There was no doubt that Adam was dead, and old Mike, the version of me that had existed before the diamond, would have been out of his mind with distress. He might have been terrified at what Lou had done. He might have wondered blindly if she was about to attack him next. New Mike simply looked at Chris and said, as if speaking through a mouth of cotton wool, should we call the police? Chris stared down at the red ruin that was Adam and shook his head. No. They will find out about the diamond. They'll try and take it from us. I nodded in agreement. So, what now? Lou pointed at Tom's bedroom door. He's blocked the entrance. I shrugged, feeling my hate for Tom swell into a massive ball of resolve and determination. He had something that belonged to me. And for that, he would pay. We decided to work together, the common goal of reaching Tom uniting us briefly in murderous collusion. We returned to the living room and lifted the coffee table. It was solid oak, heavy and durable, and would make a perfect battering ram. We broke Tom's door down. It splintered, the thin panelling disintegrating under our assault and the chest of drawers that he had dragged in front of it fell backward, crashing to the floor. We kept going, forcing the door open just wide enough that we could push our way in, and... We found Tom on his bed, oblivious to our dramatic entrance. He sat cross-legged, turning the diamond over and over between his fingers letting the light from his window catch and play with the stone, and his eyes were so wide, his pupils so massive, that he looked drugged. 
He breathed in shallow, short bursts, sweat pouring down his face, which was drenched in a red shade of ecstasy. As he rocked back and forth, he made a high-pitched, keening noise in the back of his throat. Like the drone of a mosquito, only more intense. He didn't call out or protest once as we held him down against the sheets and strangled the life out of him. As the diamond fell from Tom's lifeless fingers, Chris went for it. He tumbled off the edge of Tom's bed and lay there on his back, legs still up over the side of the mattress, cradling the diamond to his chest, <laughs> sobbing. Lou climbed off Tom's body, crossed the room, and picked up a 20-kilogram kettlebell that Tom kept by the bed so he could train between gym sessions. She lifted it as if it weighed no more than a marble, walked to where Chris lay crooning over the diamond in victory, and dropped it on his head. With a heavy crunch, the weight smashed downwards and settled. What remained of Chris's head spread outwards, misshapen and messy, like an empty eggshell smashed flat by the palm of a hand. The diamond found its way to Lou. Trembling, her mouth pulled wide with delight. She backed up toward the room's old sash window. Holding the red diamond to the sunlight, she gazed at the little floors within, her eyes brimming with tears. And I knew then, as I looked at her, a beam of sunshine playing with strands of her chestnut hair. Hair I had loved to pull just a little, never enough to hurt, but just enough to tease and excite. I knew then, as the years we had shared flashed past in a blur of love and pain. That I would have to kill her. I reasoned with myself that it wasn't really Lou I would kill. She had changed, like I had. Anything that was once old Lou had been replaced by the diamond. And she was now hard and cold and bloody and filled with little flaws. Just like it was. It's only going to end in pain, you know. She told me once when we were sat in a cafe looking out at a world that was already a distant memory. A world where people walked next to each other instead of two meters apart. I'd ignored her because caution had been an inconvenient obstacle and I had cheerfully thrown it to the wind. Turned out she was right. But the pain would be hers, not mine. She said something then, but I hardly heard the words. All I could think about was the diamond. It filled my brain like a rising tide. I took a step forward. The street outside my house is almost empty. The hour is late. 
and people no longer fill the city with their drunken revels at night. People stay at home, as they have been told to do. And for this, I am glad. Because I cannot kill everyone in this city, no matter how much I want to. The body of a woman lies in the driveway of the house, arms and legs spread wide as if she is floating on her back in a pond. She is beautiful. Even surrounded as she is by splinters and shards of glass, glass from a large old sash window. I loved the woman once, but now she is dead. Because I pushed her through that window using her split second of surprise to wrest the red diamond from her grip before she fell. She looks almost peaceful now, if you ignore the brain matter smeared on the gravel and her shattered limbs bent at awkward angles. I step over her as I stepped over the corpses of all my friends, without a downward glance. What use is there in dwelling on the past? None at all. In my hand, a perfect blood-red stone digs into my palm, drawing blood. It sings to me, and I stumble along the road, going where I do not know. But the whys and wherefores no longer matter, do they? Not in a world redesigned from the ground up by sickness. Not in a world where we have all become ghosts, floating along like smoke on a breeze. None of it matters anymore. Friendship is impractical. Love is defunct. There is only red. And that is enough for me. have ended. Are you feeling all right? We did our best to give you a fright. You may feel safe in the bright sunlight, but soon, once again, you'll be sleepless tonight. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. 
On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for being sleepless tonight and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.